Well, please take your Bibles if you would and turn with me to Luke's Gospel, the Gospel according to Luke. If you are looking for that and not familiar, just go to the latter half of your Bible, New Testament, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Luke chapter 4, and we are going to read verses 14 and 15 as we begin our time together this morning learning more about the Lord Jesus Christ. Luke chapter 4, verse 14 and 15. And Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through all the surrounding district. And he began teaching in their synagogues and was praised by all. I often, seems like all the time, have this experience when going on a trip or a camp or some type of extended event to a place away from home where I will find out toward the end of those few days that week, something maybe a little bit longer, about a secret place near where I'm staying that somehow everyone else seemed to know about, but I didn't know about. There is something going on. There's a, a shortcut or maybe a, an ice cream shop or another cafeteria that's not so crowded or maybe when it comes to youth camp, another bathhouse just down the road that none of the kids are using. And I always wish at that time when it's Thursday or Friday and I'm leaving on Saturday that I had just known about this stuff earlier on in the week, maybe when I first got there. And really, there's kind of a simple way to actually do that, which would be to just go out before all this gets started, whenever I show up, and just get a little bit of both figuratively and literally the lay of the land. Just go find out. What is ahead? Get a little preview. Read an information booklet. Uh, look at a pamphlet. Look at a map. Talk to some people. Talk to somebody who lives there. Talk to someone who's been there a long time or has been there before. So when I come back the next time, I always know the spots if I go back to the same place. But the first time, it's a little bit hard to go through. And it's a little bit hard to know what those places are. Uh, but there are ways to avoid that, as I've said. Well, similarly here, when we get into this next section of Jesus' life and Jesus' ministry... There are going to be some things that when we get to the end of the next few chapters, you will wish that you had known. Or as we go along, you'll say, you know, this may have made more sense if we knew this up front. And Luke, thankfully, gives us a little bit of that in this text in verses 14 and 15 by way of summary. And it gives us the opportunity as well to talk about some of the things and get familiar with some of the things that are going to characterize Jesus' ministry, not only here for much of the rest of chapter 4, but all the way through most of chapter 9 into this. So as we talk about what's going to come over the next several months of learning about Jesus, we want to just go ahead and get familiar with the kinds of things that we're going to need to know ahead of time that are going to make this much richer that's going to help us to understand the things that we might otherwise miss or not know until much later than we wish that we knew them. Now Jesus here is ready to minister to the people. He has been identified and prepared as the Son of God. We saw this when he came onto the scene after the ministry of John the Baptist. Uh, starting in verse 21, when the people were baptized, Jesus was also baptized. He was praying, heaven was open, the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came out of heaven, you are my beloved son, in you I am well pleased. God declares him to be the son. Luke's genealogy 
shows him to be the son of God. And it culminates in those very words at the end of verse 38. The son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. And then chapter 4, the first 13 verses that we looked at. The devil tempts him and one of the main things that he challenges him on the basis of, or in fact just challenges overall, is Jesus' identity as the son of God. And among other things that Jesus' success against temptation does, it demonstrates that Jesus is in fact the son of God. So now the Son of God is ready to do the thing that he has been sent into the world to do. And he's going to minister to the people. He's going to show the people of Galilee what he is all about. And in this passage, we get an introduction and a summary of a long season of ministry in Galilee. In fact, this is most likely the longest single season of ministry that's described in the life of the Lord Jesus anywhere. The section of time or the amount of time, the season that he spent in Galilee from Luke 4 through Luke 9 is the longest he ever kind of stays in one place. The longest segment of his ministry. And so it's helpful for us to consider just what that looked like and to begin with some of the background of that. So we'll see this morning Jesus ministering in Galilee. And we want to start with the timeline. When was all of this happening and what did this look like? Well, with regard to the timeline, the first thing to note is this it took place after his preparation. After his preparation. And we saw these things in the previous several weeks where we talked about all that had to do with his baptism, his anointing, his genealogy, his testing, his success against temptation. But here you come to verse 14. And it says, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. You say, when did this actually take place well the best that we can tell from actually trying to place this on a calendar might be a little bit surprising to you because what it looks like is Jesus got tempted then the devil left him and the next thing you know he just takes off and says all right before sunset I'm going to start and I'm going to head back but in reality what actually is the likely timeline is something like a year of ministry between verses 13 and 14. There is a season of Jesus' life that is only described in one of the gospel accounts. And that is in the early chapters of the gospel of John. Jesus evidently had been doing much more before he came back to Galilee than simply being baptized and tempted. And we'll see this in a moment. We'll walk through some of that. Luke, for his part, has chosen to focus on Jesus' ministry in Galilee. And it's difficult to say exactly why. We could come up with some speculative reasons or some educated guesses like Luke's focus on the Gentiles or something like that. Uh, but he has only so much room in a scroll. And like all other biographical writers, he has to pick and choose the particular parts of Jesus' life that he wants to present to his reader. Not to distort something, but to make the points that he especially wants to make. This is why we have more than one gospel. There are multiple witnesses to the life of Jesus. But each author had his own reasons for writing the things that he did. And his own larger picture that he's trying to build. So Jesus had a very full life. Not all of it could have been recorded. God, uh, John says in the Gospel of John, if you tried to write it all down, all the books on the whole world couldn't even hold it all, all the things that he did. And Luke decides, I'm going to jump straight into the ministry in Galilee that, John, uh, that is after what John 
the apostle describes. So his uh, return to Galilee takes place after his preparation, but it takes place also after initial ministry outside Galilee. Initial ministry outside Galilee. Now, if Galilee sounds like a place you have no idea where this is and what I'm talking about, I want to try to help with that. Some of you have been there. You know what it's like. You could get up here and you could explain what's going on much better than I could. Others of you say, I've never even heard of Galilee. So we want to try to at least bridge that gap somewhat as we go through this. So we have a few maps to look at and a few photos of the areas that we're going to talk about. So the first section of his ministry outside of Galilee took place in Jerusalem and in Judea. And let me see if you can just look up here and see. I'm not sure if there's a, a map that may show up for that, but outside or in Jerusalem and in Judea. And uh, what you have with Jerusalem and Judea is in the southern portion of the nation. You have Jesus who attends, and we can look over, if you would look over with me in the gospel according to John. Uh, we're going to just kind of survey our way through this. Jesus, after some initial ministry around John, who identified him, John the Baptist, and some um, initial uh, sort of selecting or calling out of his disciples, a few of them in an initial way, uh, he goes up to a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and he takes a trip from his sort of current base of the Judean area where he is ministering nearby John the Baptist. And he has this purpose in John chapter 1, verse 43. The next day he purposed to go into Galilee from there. And then it says in chapter 2, verse 1, on the third day there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee. So there's a wedding. He is invited. Verse 2, Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. He goes to the wedding. He turns water into wine. And then after this is over, it says in verse 12, he went down to Capernaum, he and his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there a few days. So he's back in Galilee for a few days, but it's still not the main base of his ministry at this point. He goes back down to the south, down to Jerusalem. Verse 13, the Passover over the Jews was near. Jesus went up to Jerusalem, and this is where he drives these people out of the temple um, because they are doing what they're not supposed to be doing in the temple, selling the sheep and oxen and so on. And uh, he then goes from there, or while he's there, rather, uh, something else happens. There is a man of the Pharisees, chapter 3, verse 1, named Nicodemus. Nicodemus, and he comes to Jesus at night, chapter 3, verse 2 tells us. And Jesus tells Nicodemus, this ruler of the Pharisees, about the new birth and that famous passage that tells us in John three sixteen these words, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. So Jesus is there in Jerusalem. These things are taking place. In verse 22 of chapter 3, it says, After these things, Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea, and there he was spending time with them and baptizing. Uh, John was also baptizing in Anon near Salim, because there was much water there, and people were coming and were being baptized, for John had not yet been thrown into prison. So you have the wedding at Cana in Galilee, you have the Jerusalem Passover, Nicodemus and Jesus' interaction with him, and then Jesus is baptizing near John, near John the Baptist. And we learn about the end of this time in chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, therefore when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself wasn't baptizing but his disciples were, he left Judea and went away again into Galilee. So... He heard that John had been imprisoned, according to Matthew 4.12. 
And Luke had already summarized that elsewhere. Then he knew the Pharisees heard that he was making more disciples than John. And Jesus says, for whatever reason, it's time to go to Galilee. But there is one more thing before he actually gets there. On the way, something else happens. Verse 3, he went away into Galilee. And verse 4 of John 4, he had to pass through where? Samaria. Samaria. And as you know from that account, many of you, you know that the Jews did not associate with Samaritans. They looked down on Samaritans. But Jesus went through Samaria and he met a woman at a well. And she was brought to faith in Christ and to salvation on that occasion through Jesus' ministry and his words to her going through Samaria on the way up to Galilee. And so then we read in verse 40 of John 4, the Samaritans came to Jesus. They were asking him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. Many more believed because of his word. And they were saying to the woman, it is no longer because of what you've said that we believe, but we have heard for ourselves and know that this one is indeed the Savior of the world. After the two days, he went forth from there into Galilee. For Jesus himself testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans received him, having seen all the things that he did in Jerusalem at the feast. Talking about chapter 2. For they themselves also went to the feast. So then he went through Samaria and he arrives in Galilee. And this is where the ministry takes place. After this initial period of ministering outside of Galilee in the land of Jerusalem and Judea. Now, Jesus' ministry in Galilee is not the final part of his ministry either. Luke is going to describe later on in his gospel how Jesus, after spending a large amount of time in Galilee, purposes to go to Jerusalem so that he can be crucified. He goes there, and it says this in Luke 9, uh, verse 51, at the end of this time in Galilee... It says, when the days were approaching for his ascension, he was determined to go to Jerusalem. He was determined to go to Jerusalem. He made up his mind and he said, I'm going there. Much of what goes on in Jesus' ministry in Galilee is a preparation for that time. He's preparing the disciples. He is preparing the people to understand just who he is before he goes up to die and to be raised from the dead and to ascend into heaven. Jesus' whole ministry in Galilee then, between those two markers, his return through Samaria in John 4 and his departure to Jerusalem in Luke 9, lasts, best we can tell, about a year and a half, about 18 months. And it is filled with excitement and with activity, as we will see in just a moment. Now, when or where was it then that Jesus was ministering? What is this Galilee region like? Let's consider the scene of Jesus' Galilean ministry. And we'll first start with the region itself. The region of Galilee, a very large part of his earthly ministry took place here. And it would be good to get a little familiar with the background. Uh, and I want to just give you a bit of an overview pulled from, uh, in large part, the uh, resource of Baker Encyclopedia of the Bible. Um, this was a place that had never been and was not now purely Jewish. The Jews had never actually fully expelled the inhabitants of the land some 1,400 years earlier when they were supposed to conquer the land of Canaan. Um, according to 1 Kings 9-11, King Solomon gave 20 cities in the region of Galilee to Hiram, king of Tyre, his friend and his ally. 
Uh, and this region was in a regular state of flux throughout Israel's history. There, there was, it was upended a lot by foreign invasions, a little bit of a buffer state. At the time of the Maccabean Revolt in 164 BC, the Jews who remained in Galilee were brought to Jerusalem. And so it's basically vacated of all Jews. Over the next couple of centuries, it became more Jewish friendly due to some certain political and cultural things. And a lot of them started to move back in that direction. And yet it was still very ethnically mixed even during the time of Jesus. Even if the loyalty of the people and the religious practice of the people was very Jewish. They even had a distinct accent among them in that region compared to Judea. And Peter himself was identified as one of Jesus' followers because he spoke like he was from somewhere else, according to Matthew 26, 73. Uh, politically, governmentally, the territory was under the rule of uh, Herod Antipas, the one who killed John the Baptist from shortly after the time Jesus was born until, his early, uh, until um, after Jesus' earthly ministry in the year A.D. 39. And, of course, the government was under the larger rule of the Roman Empire during this time. As a result, Galilee had some pretty good roads, it turns out, better than most other places would have during this area. Now, it was bounded, as far as borders go, bounded on the west by the Mediterranean Sea, on the east by the Jordan River and the Sea of Galilee. One writer helps us to know the territory size. Quote, under Roman rule, Galilee was about 25 to 30 miles from east to west and about 35 to 40 miles from north to south. So maybe if you're familiar with our area and you know the map, go from Watt Road to Strawberry Plains Pike. That's about the whole region that Jesus is spending his time in these 18 months. And then maybe from Andersonville, Norris, Clinton kind of area near the Museum of Appalachia. Wonderful place if you want to visit. Down to the south side of Maryville or even top of the world. That's, that's your range. That's about the size of the whole place that Jesus was ministering. And he crisscrossed and he went all over it during this time. It was mountainous in the north and it turned flatter as it got toward the south. It was very fertile, especially compared to southern Israel. And the Sea of Galilee was a haven, not only for fishing, but also for sick people to visit for recovery with the help of the local springs and the favorable climate. Now, a lot of Jesus' ministry took place specifically around that sea, the Sea of Galilee. If you've read through the Gospels, you have heard about the Sea of Galilee. And if, uh, if we have them, I'd love to show you a few pictures of this. Are these working? Maybe they're, maybe they're Yeah, so Sea of Galilee. You have here a picture, first of all, of the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee uh, right there. Then you also have a, a photo of uh, Mount Arbel or Arbel. Again, correct me if I'm wrong in my pronunciation, but right here on the border of the sea overlooking the sea and then there is one more that may be helpful which is the mount of beatitudes the mount of beatitudes which is uh, where jesus is thought to have according to tradition to have given his sermon on the mount which will show up later in the gospel according to luke um, a description of the lake one dictionary says quote the lake itself is located 690 feet below sea level it is 15 miles long and six miles wide, end quote. Or if you want to just put the areas of Farragut and Hardin Valley together, it's about that big. Not what we usually think of as terms of a sea, more of a lake size, but this is what it's called. Went by other names, the Sea of Chinnereth, the Sea of Gennesaret, the Sea of Tiberias, and had a max depth of about 200 feet. And because of the location and the surrounding topography, there were often sudden and violent storms that we read about 
in the gospel accounts. The New Testament mentions uh, many cities in the region of Galilee, including Capernaum, Nazareth, and Decapolis, a somewhat, somewhat consistent group of Hellenistic cities on the eastern side of the Jordan River and the Sea of Galilee. All but one of Jesus' disciples were from this region. Judas was the only one who was not. And they followed Jesus while he was there and then out from there from the earliest days of his earthly ministry. So this is Galilee itself. Luke tells us that Jesus returned to Galilee and he began teaching in their synagogues. And this is the other thing that I want to go into a little bit of a background about, the synagogues of Galilee. What was a synagogue? Well, this is the main location of Jesus' teaching, so again, it's very much worth exploring. Uh, The word itself is basically just a transliteration of words that mean to assemble together. Um, synagogue, the gathering. And then the building itself came to be known by the concept, much like church uh, and assembly. And we know that the church is not technically the building, but we still call it a church building where there is one. And uh, we refer to it as going to the church, even if there's no people there. Same thing, the synagogue. And so a lot of the New Testament events took place with this Jewish synagogue, not only in the life of Jesus, but also in the book of Acts. Again, I want to give you some background information here as well. Nobody really knows where the origin of this practice started exactly. The synagogue doesn't have a defined starting point. The earliest evidence seems to be from the 3rd century BC in Egypt, of all places. Um, But they existed eventually not only all over Israel, but also all over the Roman empires. All the places where where the Jews had dispersed among that empire out from Jerusalem. Uh, They met routinely on the Sabbath, on Saturday, on the seventh day of the week. And one source notes that there's some evidence that people also met for worship on Monday and Thursday, on the second and the fifth days of the week. When they were there, they would typically go through certain worship order elements, uh, confession of faith, the Shema, uh, prayer, scripture reading on a cycle, interpretation of the scripture, Um, an address or what scripture might call a word of exhortation and then a blessing you can see that even the church's worship services throughout church history are are somewhat similar to the way that the jewish synagogue practiced and it wasn't prescriptive but many of the elements there make sense to continue to do Uh, there also seems to be some type of judicial authority vested in the synagogue for example when the apostle paul was trying to persecute christians he got letters to the people in the synagogues at these places Um, and the elders of the synagogues had some legal authority where people could not only be punished for crimes by virtue of their decision and their activity, but also they could be kicked out of the synagogue. We read about that in John chapter 9. Uh, the synagogue had two main officers during Jesus' day that would be noted. The ruler of the synagogue would be responsible for order in the synagogue and then for picking the scripture reader. And then the attendant of the synagogue. Uh, and he handled the physical text itself and also, one source tells us, handled the corporal punishment quite an exciting job to have we read about this man in uh, just a few verses later in Luke chapter 4 where in verse 20 Jesus closed the book gave it back to the attendant and sat down as for the building itself when possible it was on high ground and it let the people face Jerusalem there would have been in the building a portable chest for the scrolls for of scripture to be in and a platform for reading and for teaching. The men and women, some of you might like this, many of you will not, sat separately from one another. And there were in the synagogues something called chief seats. 
which would have been facing the people. And Jesus criticized the scribes for loving. You love to be seated in the chief seats. You like to be important. And you like other people viewing you as important. And that's what they did. So this is what the synagogue was. We have a a couple of photos. One of a typical synagogue plan, sort of a reconstruction of what it it would have looked like. Um, This is not necessarily every synagogue, but that kind of gives you an idea. The main meeting space down below. And then I believe the women would have been even up above under certain formats. And that's the way that they were separated. And then we also have a picture of uh, the ruins of a later rebuilt synagogue in Capernaum from about the year 300. So this isn't exactly what it would have looked like, but there's just an example of how the synagogue tradition continued even after the time of Jesus in the New Testament. So this is a little bit of the, the, just the geographical and the, uh, the building that Jesus would have been meeting in and teaching in. So Jesus returned to Galilee. He's teaching in their synagogues. What then did he do in this place and in these synagogues? What was Jesus up to? Let's look at that for a few moments. The substance of Jesus' ministry. What was he all about and what was he doing during this time? The first thing is what Luke notes here in verse 14, which is his empowerment by the Holy Spirit. His empowerment by the Holy Spirit. He returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. This had become the state in which Jesus found himself back in verse 22. The Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove. And verse 4, excuse me, chapter 4, verse 1, he was led around by the Spirit in the wilderness, and he is full of the Holy Spirit. So Jesus here is under the influence, under the control, the direction of the Spirit of God who has come upon him as the anointed one. And thus Jesus is not just Jesus of Nazareth, but Jesus the Messiah, the anointed one, the Christ. Jesus comes to minister and he does not just do so as the God-man, but the Spirit of God is upon him also. And this is demonstrated in the various ways that Jesus then operates by the power of the Holy Spirit who enables him to do these miraculous deeds that we will see. This would describe the power of the Spirit, not just a season in Jesus' life, but his entire existence and ministry from this point on until eternity. This is what Jesus now is like. He is operating now, back then, now, and always in the power of the Holy Spirit. So his ministry is empowered by the Holy Spirit. He also, its ministry is characterized by his miracles and signs. His miracles and signs. When he shows up to Nazareth in this section that's here that we'll follow this one, uh, the people are already aware of his miraculous powers. For one thing, we learn about this in, uh, in John 4, the way the people received him because of what they had seen at the feast in Jerusalem. Verse 45, it said, The Galileans received him having seen all the things he did in Jerusalem at the feast. But even when Jesus goes to Nazareth, which is described here in verse 16 all the way through verse 30, what he says is in verse 23, No doubt you'll quote this proverb to me, physician, heal yourself. Whatever we heard was done at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. So Jesus is doing miracles both away from Galilee and even when he gets back. He's doing them in these other places. They heard about it taking place in other regions of Galilee. Well, what are the kinds of things that he did? Well, he healed the sick and the lame. 
He raised the dead. He cast out demons. We see this down in verse 35. Jesus rebuked him, a demon, and said, Be quiet and come out of him. Jesus fed 5,000 men with five loaves and two fish. He stilled the sea. Jesus did these miracles and then some. His ministry around Galilee was filled with amazing things that no one else could do and no one else had ever done. And so in the power of the Spirit, he goes and then he shows his miraculous signs and wonders. But it's not just that he goes and he does amazing things. He also speaks amazing words. And Jesus' ministry is filled with this. And so Luke says in verse 4, verse 14 rather, he uh, returned in the power of the Spirit. And then verse 15, he began teaching. He began teaching in their synagogues and was praised by all. Now this is an important thing to understand about Jesus. I just want to make sure that we do understand this point. Jesus was someone who constantly taught. He came to teach and to preach and to proclaim and to say things and to reveal truth and to apply truth to people. This is what Jesus came to do. In fact, at the end of the chapter, he says in verse 43, I must preach the kingdom of God to the other cities also, for I was sent for this purpose. So Jesus is teaching, he is preaching. His ministry consisted in large part of miracles and of signs and of his redemptive work when he went to the cross. But he was also constantly teaching. Now, sadly, many people want to peg and pinhole Jesus as only a good teacher. They think that this is what Jesus is really there for. They reject him as the object of faith. They reject him as the atoning savior. They say he didn't really rise from the dead. And they might even say he didn't do any of these miraculous signs. They just say he taught a lot of good things. And so we need to follow Jesus' teaching and maybe follow his example along with that. This is a very, very bad misunderstanding of Jesus' role. In fact, the only reason why many people even listened to him was because he had all the other stuff that surrounded that, that proved who he was. And yet... It is true that Jesus was a teacher, very much a teacher, and a phenomenal teacher at that. If you remember back in chapter 2, what was he doing at the temple? When his parents found him, in verse 46, they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. If this described 12-year-old Jesus in the temple what do you think his teaching was like as a 30 year old man going around and teaching what he would then teach in Galilee well you don't have to wonder because we're going to see it all throughout this gospel and as you read Jesus words you're going to see not only their reaction but his wisdom is just off the charts he has an answer for everything he has an answer for everyone he has insight that no one else has He knows what to say. And as a result, he amazed his listeners and he stumps his opponents. And everybody wants to hear what he has to say. People traveled from all over. They would go out in the middle of the fields without even bringing anything along. They said, we just got to go hear this guy. We've got to go see what he's doing. His teaching was varied. It was pithy. It obviously had authority in that it didn't just come from quoting other people and kind of going into what they say, but it originated with him and yet at the same time 
It wasn't original to him. He only came to speak what the Father sent him to say. And he wasn't doing things that were new and outside the scope of what God had already revealed. Jesus made this clear when he begins the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. And he says this about his place with regard to previous teaching that came from God. Verse 17, he says, Don't think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. This is basically the way of saying the, what we call the Old Testament. Don't think that I came to abolish previous scripture. I didn't come to undermine that, to change that, to get rid of that. I didn't come to do something different. I didn't come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, the smallest letter or stroke shall not pass from the law until all is accomplished. There are many people today that like to think that Jesus came and that he taught something that is at odds with the Old Testament. Whether it's a view of God, a view of morality, a view of salvation, whatever it is. And they think the Old Testament said that, but the New Testament says this. Jesus himself testifies otherwise. He says, I came to fulfill the Old Testament. I came not to undermine the Old Testament, not to abolish it, not to get rid of it, not to differ with it in any way because you can't even take away a stroke of a letter, much less a word or a message or a sentence or anything more. So Jesus came to teach in ways that had never been heard before but were within the confines of all that God had already said in the Bible. So people then saw this they saw his wisdom they saw his authority when he is teaching they comment things like a new teaching with authority he even commands the demons and they listen the demons obey him this is how powerful his teaching is verse 32 they were amazed at his teaching for his message uh, his message was with authority in the synagogue there was a man possessed by the spirit of an unclean demon and then he gives us as an example of how Jesus cast it out in verse 36 they say what is this message for with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits and they come out jesus teaching was wise it was authoritative what did he talk about well just a few things to note he talked about the kingdom of god verse 43 he says i must preach the kingdom of god to other cities also Chapter 8, verse 1 says, soon afterwards, he began going around from one city and village to another, proclaiming and preaching the kingdom of God. Jesus came into Galilee preaching the kingdom of God. And we'll explore what that refers to in the days ahead. Jesus came, according to Luke 5.20, preaching the forgiveness of sins. And he clearly said to a man who was paralytic and his friends let him down through the roof, he says, seeing their faith, he said, friend, your sins are forgiven you. And the teachers around him took issue with that. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Not knowing what was true about Jesus. Jesus preached the kingdom. He preached forgiveness. He preached repentance, just like John the Baptist. Verse 32, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. The passages from Mark and Matthew that describe these same events going on in Galilee say that Jesus came saying, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus preached the kingdom and forgiveness and repentance. He preached himself as Lord, even over the Sabbath, according to chapter 6, verse 11. And then, of course, he preached about 
moral conduct. We have here in Luke 6, starting in verse 20, an account of Jesus' teaching that aligns with what Matthew 5 calls the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus gave a number of things with regard to what the law of God demands that God's people do in their moral conduct. And then, of course, one more thing that we'll see as we go throughout this is the cost of discipleship and what it means to be a true follower of Jesus. When we get to chapter 9 and Jesus is about to go out to Jerusalem, he convinces his disciples of who he is. And he says in verse 23 and 24, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will find it. Jesus taught about the high value of following him, but the high cost that is involved. Peter summarizes Jesus' ministry in Galilee later in Acts chapter 10. And he says these words, verses 36 to 38. The word which he sent to the sons of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know the thing which took place throughout all Judea, starting from Galilee after the baptism which John proclaimed. You know of Jesus of Nazareth, uh, Nazareth, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power, and how he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And then, of course, he sent the word through the apostles out into the world. And Peter's assessment of this is significant because there is one more purpose that we will find woven throughout Jesus' Galilean ministry, which is to select and to convince a group of 12 men, disciples, that he was, in fact, the Son of God, that he was the Christ, and that they should follow him and that they should spread his gospel message after he is no longer on the earth. And that's exactly why we have the gospel according to Luke and Mark and Matthew and John and the rest of the New Testament today. Well, what was the response of the people like? This is the last thing that we want to consider. Let's look at the general response to Jesus' ministry because this is going to help us understand not only what he did, but also when we show up in the next scene, it's going to frame that a little bit for us. What is the response to Jesus' ministry? It says, The news about him spread, verse 14, through all the surrounding district. And everybody is reporting what is going on. People are talking about him. And the response is very favorable. It says he was praised by all. Everybody thinks well of Jesus when they hear him. They're all impressed by him. And you can just imagine the scene. It just had to be electric. Just the buzz about Jesus going around this whole town. And maybe you've been a part of this when something really, really big is going on. Uh, from time to time in history, a captivating figure comes along. And they, they just they catch everybody's attention. And there's something about this person. They're speaking. They're singing. Uh, their strength. Maybe some talent in some way. And everybody is just enamored with this person for a time. And then something bad usually happens or people get tired or they find out that they posted something 10 years ago on social media that they shouldn't have said and then everybody turns on him. But not so with Jesus because Jesus had no flaws. Of course, the people still found ways to turn on him. Not because there was a problem with him, but because there was something wrong with us as human beings. 
The fact that Jesus does all that he does here and that he's in general praised by people so widely and so profusely just shows how sinful we are when we see the response not only of the people in Nazareth but everyone who rejected him. But there's nobody, nobody whose fame, nobody whose skill, nobody whose talent has been like Jesus. Jesus is a powerful teacher, a powerful orator, a powerful strength, a powerful someone with strength, but he has the substance to back it all up. He has the character, the integrity, the knowledge, and of course the nature of who he is as the God-man. He's not like those flash-in-the-pan kind of popular people or even the ones with sustained fame and uh, influence in the world. There's really never been anyone like him. The people of Galilee get a taste of him and they are enamored. He is being praised by all. And so, of course, then when he comes to yet another city in Galilee, you would expect that the pattern would be the same. Because it's not just any other city, even among Galilee, but it is his hometown. And this is where he goes to next, verse 16. When he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, uh, when, and he came to Nazareth, rather, where he'd been brought up, and as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read. Not only would Jesus be expected to be welcomed for his incredible teaching, but also, you could reasonably predict, this is the hometown boy. This is the one. He grew up here. We know him. We're going to root for his success. We want him to succeed. And this is the way that we treat our hometown heroes. Everybody comes back to town and they've done something famous. They've done something amazing. And we've been pulling for them the whole time. And they come back and everybody wants to roll out the red carpet. They want to pay for their meals. They want to do everything for them. And of course, it would make sense with Jesus that this would happen. And you would expect it to happen. But you would be wrong. You would be wrong. And that stunning scene is what plays out as Jesus arrives back in his hometown in the city of Nazareth. That is what we're going to look at next time. And we will see right from the get-go, not only that Jesus demonstrates who he is with power and amazing ways, but that not everyone responds to Jesus in the right way. For this morning, we should consider that you ought to go beyond merely listening to Jesus' teaching, merely being impressed by him, and even praising him. Lots of people have good things to say about Jesus and about the things that he did. But Jesus isn't just interested in being praised for his teaching or his power. Jesus is interested in being responded to as the Son of God. John the Apostle says at the end of his letter that you will have eternal life if you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and you will have life in his name. That is what Jesus calls us to this morning. So as you're introduced to this phase, this season of his ministry, I urge you to go ahead and to recognize him for who he is as the son of God and to entrust yourself to him as the only savior who can take away your sins and give you eternal life. Let's pray together and then we will sing and welcome a new member. Father, thank you for Jesus' amazing power, his teaching, his wisdom, and all that he said and did. We thank you that we have it recorded so that we can know it. May we get very, very familiar with him in a way that is not only out of intellectual curiosity or even uh, affirmation and praise of him, but one of saving faith. 
And we pray that he would have that impact upon us as we go through. And for those of us who have placed our faith in Christ, may we worship and love and trust and model our lives after him and be conformed to him in every way and give him all the credit that he deserves as the one who is to be praised. We ask this in his name. Amen.